Hey guys, I love that bumper. I know I say it every time, but uh, there's there's so many truths in there that hopefully over the course of this series, you've started to grasp and hopefully it's started to transform the way you think or they start to transform the way you live and, and inform your perspective on life because you truly are emissaries of our King Jesus. You are ministers of reconciliation. You, as Jesus has been sent from heaven, that is our starting place in Christ. And you have been sent to this world to be salt and light. And you see in, the, in that bumper how the light just permeates all over the world because we are to be a light on a lampstand on a hill like a city on a hill to showcase to people who our God is so that they see who we are and they worship our God. Peter has already talked about that in this book and that is a huge part of embracing exile and remember in this series we're doing a little bit of biblical theology where, where we kind of trace, trace a theme in this passage and uh, in each passage throughout the scriptures. We pull some things in and see how the Old Testament and the New Testament go together. We're doing a little bit of cultural commentary where we talk about, uh, you know, what, what the, what the world views in terms of this and, and how maybe that's even, um, infiltrated the church a bit and and we'll talk a little bit about church culture as well and then also we're doing a little bit of spiritual formation and all these things come together so these kingdom shifts we're talking about can actually happen and the first or the shift today we're talking about is from education to transformation now remember that doesn't mean we leave the the first part behind doesn't mean the first part is bad or evil and we leave that behind for the sake of, of the, the latter part, it means we're, we're redefining it. We are hopefully now holistically seeing what education is supposed to be. And education in the Bible here is, and if you read the scriptures, it's, it's about the whole person. It's, it's about, your, your, remember what Jesus says, love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, right? It's, it's integrated. You know, you are a, a whole person when you do this. And, uh, and so it's so much more than just cognition, right? It's so much more than just educating your mind and involves the entirety of your being. Even the heart, I mean, that's a seat of emotion, but in the scriptures, it's talking about your will, your volition, your emotions. Your, this is the very center of your, of your being. Uh, in, in the scriptures, uh, Deuteronomy 6 talks about talks about um, uh, biblical education this way, what we would call discipleship, disciple-making. It says, hey, when you're walking along the road, when you're sitting down, when you're eating, when you're going in your house, when you're going out of your house, when you're going through the gate, when you're coming out of the gate, basically at any time, talk about these things. Remember to love the Lord your God with all that you are. Remember Love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, love your enemies. Remember, you are salt, you are light, you are ministers of reconciliation. Remember, your identity is in Christ Jesus. Your destiny is in Christ Jesus. Remember, you were designed to create, to influence our city and the world. That's Deuteronomy 6. I mean, Isaiah 2 is also this this uh, kind of nascent picture of the church or this foreshadowing of the church uh, where, where Isaiah 2 talks about the people of God coming up the mountain of God to learn God's ways and then 
go out and walk in his paths. Uh, It's not just, okay, you sit here and you learn. It's no, that learning, that cognition, that education leads to walking, leads to moving forward. It doesn't lead to stagnation. It leads to moving forward in God's paths. And then, I mean, pick, pick any account of Jesus with his disciples. They're always walking. They're always going somewhere to, to a party, to a meal. They're having fun. They're, they're always going somewhere. It's why Jesus says in Matthew 28, when he gives the great commission to make disciples, he says, in your going, that's, how it sh- how, that's literally the Greek translation, as you are going, in your going, so he assumes you are going. He assumes you are walking. He assumes you are moving. So in your going, make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them. You know, help them proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. This is disciple making. This is true Christian biblical education. So the Bible really talks about all this. And, and even in our culture, guys, even in our culture, the educational system, the whole university system, it started out this way. It started out with this humanistic ideal. And when you hear humanistic, don't, don't think bad, secular humanism. Just, just focusing on the whole person <clears throat> and integrating the whole person. So this humanistic ideal for integration in order to form the soul. Because they had this ideal that, that uh, we can help in education. We can help people figure out the big questions, the ultimate questions in life. And so the university system was designed that way. It's why most of our universities, uh, the vast majority of them, were started by Christians. It's why so many of them, uh, the, the old institutions, have a Christian heritage. Because it was all about forming the soul. It was all about how do we make disciples and how do we walk forward in the mission of God. Well, of course, that's, that's shifted. That's changed. Uh, things have become a little bit more pluralistic and diverse. So universities kind of realize, well, we can't just do this thing. And, and they lost something along the way. Now, uh, what they lost was this, this focus on the entire person. And, and universities have become more and more specialized. I mean, just think about your degree program and how specialized it is. When I was in seminary, uh, there's this, there's kind of this kind of running half truth joke thing where people would say, Oh, your Old Testament professor, he knows nothing about the New Testament. His specialty is the Old Testament. Or your New Testament professor, he knows nothing about the Old Testament. His specialty is the New Testament. So don't ask him questions about this or her questions about that. Um, because that's their specialty. And as you go further and further in education, that happens. Like PhDs, masters and then PhDs get more and more specific and specialized. Because I, when I did my PhD, I had to write on something that no one else had written on before. You know how hard it is to find a topic that nobody else has written on before? I think Solomon said, uh, there's nothing new under the sun, right? And, and it's like, wow. But in a PhD, you're expected to uncover something that is new under the sun. And, and so, or at least that no one has uncovered yet. And, uh, and it gets more specific. It's why I actually did my PhD in biblical theology, because it was broader. I didn't want to be that specialized. So that is, that's our educational system, which means because it's, it's done that, the whole person isn't engaged anymore. The whole person 
uh, starts to get neglected and we start to become, we've started to become more myopic in our view of education and what it does for us and what it accomplishes. And so the bottom line today that I want to, that I want to share with you that I want you to take away from this is education isn't just cognition. It's transformation. Education isn't just cognition. It's transformation. Now, that doesn't mean we get rid of cognition. That doesn't mean we stop specializing. But it means it can't stop here. It has to lead to walking with the Spirit of God. I mean, even our life in the Spirit, guys, it's how it's described. It's, it's walking in step with the Spirit from, from Galatians. It's, it's following Jesus. It's living on mission with God, right? The big problem is, Transformation doesn't happen overnight, but we want it to. (laughs) We know it doesn't, but we want it now. We wish it did. And so uh, I have people ask me all the time about reading the Bible and and they're like, I want to read, I want to, I want to read the Bible like you do. I want to understand it like you do. I want to be able to interpret it like that. And I'm like, hey, good news. You can it's possible for you. So if you want that, that is possible for you to do. Um, bad news is, that's going to take decades. I've been reading the Bible since I was 10. Over and over and over and over. I won't tell you how many decades that is. Some of you guys know. But it's decades. Over and over again. And that's, that's how it's happened. Now, along the way, in my pursuit of that... Um, I picked up tools here and there, and yes, I went to seminary, but guess what? In seminary, they don't always teach you how to read the Bible. Just ask Daniel Park. He still doesn't know. I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) uh, In seminary, though, they they don't focus on that. I was fortunate enough to have a professor who did focus on that um, and, and who gave me tools, and I can give you those, but it still doesn't happen overnight. Actually, we have given you those. We, uh, in God's story for our three leaders, that's all those tools to read the Bible. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, the point is that transformation is going to take time. But in our culture today, we, we say we want it, but we don't want to put in the work for it. So today we're going to talk about how how we're supposed to do that, how we can do that, how you can do that as a follower of Jesus, um, and how you can, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, um, how you can do that to, how, how you can maybe start to live more on mission for God along the way. So Peter says here in verse seven of chapter four, uh, just the first part here, uh, which in when you talk about the first part of the verse, it'd be like verse 7a, and then we'll talk about verse 7b in a second. So verse 7a, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's a pretty bold statement. I, I mean, there's a guy at Dundas Square that says that. And, and we're like, ooh, he's, is he like, is he okay? Does he really believe that? Is it really all at hand? So Peter actually says that. So that guy at Dundas Square, who says that, um, I mean, he's just quoting scripture here. So Peter, he's already said that. The end of all things is at hand. Jesus has already said that. 
So it's not it's not brand, a brand new declaration. Uh, what Peter means here is that we are in the last times, and when you think through the covenants in the new in the scriptures, um, you, there's multiple covenants. You know the 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 covenant with Adam, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David. You go through all these covenants, and uh, and then you get to the new covenant, which is prophesied in the Old Testament, is is consummated uh, or so initiated, I should say, in um, Acts chapter two, where the Spirit comes to dwell in us and the Spirit comes comes upon us, uh, and so we are living in this last age, guys. There, there isn't another covenant to come. It's not like we have another prophecy that says, oh, there's a new covenant 2.0. This is the covenant. So when Peter says the end of all things is at hand, we are in those end times. We're living in those times where, where we should have a perspective to the end. So the question here is, where is your hope rooted? Because what, what he's saying here is this is supposed to transform our perspective. It's supposed to help us understand how to live. Okay, So where is your hope rooted today? Just think about that for a second. Where, and I want to give you some, a little bit of time. Like, where is your hope rooted? Because if it's rooted in this world and the things of this world, it's going to be fragile and fading. Eschatological hope, hope in Hope, hope that is, that is uh, focused on Jesus uh, consummating things on, on, on the end here, that we know we're in the end of all things. As, as Peter says here, uh, this hope is firm and forever. It is, it's, it's, a, it's an indication of how, of how shaky your hope is because where you place your future hope determines your present health. And if your future hope is in things of this world, well, is you're always going to feel like you're on shaky ground. It's why, it's why Jesus says, build your house on the rock. And who is that rock? He says, well, it's me. I'm your firm foundation. I'm the cornerstone. Well, you, you can build your house on the sand on the world and put your hopes in that, but it's going to crumble when circumstances of this world come in on it. So he says, hear my words, obey, obey those words. Guys, if just think about this, if you truly realize this, that the end of all things is at hand, how would that change how you live out today? Half you might have thought, why wouldn't be here listening to this? (laughs) But how would that change if? If you truly realize what Peter said here. Now, I can say this. We can read this. But for a lot of us, it stops here at cognition. It doesn't lead to transformation in how we live and how we walk and how we conduct ourselves, how we talk to our spouses, how we uh, meet our neighbors, how we, how we um, uh, order food how we um, uh, talk to our children, how we do our studies in school. Like For a lot of us, it doesn't go into those things. That's transformation. So how do we move there? How do we move from just cognition 
to transformation? How do you allow a truth like this to permeate your soul? How do you allow it to direct you? How do you allow it to transform you? How do you allow a truth like this to guide you so that every moment of every day you realize what Paul says in Ephesians 5, I need to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. The end of all things is at hand, as Peter says. Go and make disciples, as Jesus says. Go in the power of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus says. How do you live every minute of every day for that end, for that purpose? How do you let a truth like that transform you? Because Peter's given them this truth, and he's given them four things to live this truth out. But if, guys, if we can't grasp this, this, this eternal perspective this eschatological perspective that the end of all things is at hand, that we actually have an urgency in this life not to live for ourselves, not to live for our, for our things, our cars, our houses, our kids, our food, our, you know, whatever your thing is, but to live on mission for God. If we could allow that to permeate ourselves, man, it would change every moment of every day for you. You wouldn't be striving as much. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, uh, you want to feel lonely. You would ha- be filled with joy. Like there's so many things this this truth could change. But but if we can't grasp that truth, then the 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 ways to live it out are going to fall flat. And so uh, we're going to do two things right now. I'm going to give you a quote, and then we're going to do a thought experiment because I want to help you grasp this truth before we move forward. And so this quote is from David Brooks from his book The Second Mountain. He says this. Because here's, here's the hindrance, here's a problem uh, with moving from education and cognition to transformation. He says, students are taught to engage in critical thinking. I'd, I'd actually um, <laughs> qualify that a bit. I think students are taught to be critical. That isn't the same thing as critical thinking. Uh, I, I don't, there aren't that many critical thinking courses from, from JK to grade 12. Right, unless you're, you're in a classical education model. Uh, I didn't take critical thinking until I was in seminary. Right? And I was like, where's this been all my life? Uh, so, uh, I mean, it depends what school you go to, all that. In philosophy, you've taken philosophy, sometimes you're taught that. But I think for the most part, education actually teaches us to be critical, not to think critically. Okay? And there's, there's a difference there. So you don't have to be you don't have to be a jerk to, to, to think critically, um, but sometimes you come off as a jerk when you're overly critical. So let's start over. Students are taught to engage in critical thinking, to doubt, to uh, distance, and take things apart. But they're given almost no instruction on how to attach to things. Oh, have you got, did you catch that? We're, we're taught to, Doubt, to distance, to, to deconstruct and take things apart. We're almost given no instruction on how to attach to things, how to admire, how to swear loyalty to, how to copy and serve, how to imitate. The universities, he says, like the rest of society, are information rich and meaning poor. Think about that. We live in a world right now where you can literally get any information you want on anything you want. It's too much. It's just way too much. Um, I mean, think about when you have an ailment 
And you're like, what is this thing that I'm feeling? And, and most of the time you don't go to the doctor first anymore. What do you do? Yeah, you Google it. And 50 things pop up. And so we're creating a whole culture of hypochondria. <laughs> like we're all hypochondriacs. So we're like, oh shoot, uh, my arm's gonna fall off in five minutes if I, don't, if I don't do this. And you're like, wait, no, you just gotta cut. Uh, you know, and, and, and so it, we have so much information at our fingertips. I mean, even now, you can go check anything I say and, and, and make sure it's, it's accurate. Like, before you can do that, you just had to trust, you just had to trust things. But now, we can find it everywhere, but what it's done is it's sucked meaning out of, uh, out of our lives. Remember, education was designed to help us understand the meaning of our lives. But because we have more and more information, because we're more and more specialized, it has, it has um, uh, removed us from meaning. We're information rich, but meaning poor. So let's do this thought experiment. Because you might still be like, okay, um, I, I think I get it. I, I'm not sure if I understand. or I'm not sure if I agree. Um, so I have, a, uh, I have two daughters and two nieces who, who live here. And in, in Toronto, and they're all around the same age, you know, eight, ranging eight to 11. So around all that same category. And, and I, was, I was with them uh, recently, and uh, we were just talking around, around the table, uh, around the lunch, around lunch. And I asked them um, what they had been taught in Kid City uh, uh, that week. And... And so they were sharing things with me, and they told me that they'd learned about Paul and Barnabas and how Paul and Barnabas were persecuted spreading the word. So what I want you to do right now, as you do this kind of thought experiment, is to put, instead of just listening to my words, put yourself in the place uh, around that table, or even, if you can, put yourself in the place of uh, myself or in the place of, the, of uh, my daughters and my nieces. And, and try to see how you would think through this. So um, I asked them what they learned. They told me Paul and Barnabas uh, were persecuted spreading the word. And I said, well, remember, I asked them what they learned. They told me what happened. They didn't tell me what they learned about what happened. You see the difference there? So if I said, what did you learn today? And through the sermon, a lot of us would just tell, would just say, would you just regurgitate what I said? You say, well, I learned that um, I should, you know, move from education to transformation. I should move past cognition. Okay, that's what I said, but what did you actually learn? How is that going to change your life? How does that affect how you live? What does that mean for how you shape your marriage? What does that mean for how you, how you uh, go about your studies in school? What does that mean for how you conduct yourself in your workplace? Okay, so I, was, so I, asked, I asked the girls, I said, well, I said, that's what happened, but what did you learn about what happened? And one of them says, well, that we should spread the word uh, no matter what. We should spread the word no matter what. And they they use those words, spread the word, which they have, they've never, <laughs> they actually haven't, I don't think I've ever said that to them, uh, but they mean share their faith, right? I think the, that's the lingo from, from uh, the teacher in Kid City, but also from, from the scriptures that talks about spreading the word um, in Acts. 
And, and so it is biblical language. Um, and so they're using that biblical language. So it's good. They're, they've, they've attached that language, but I'm still wondering if they know what that means. And that's the thing, guys. You can say, I know I'm supposed to spread the word. I know I'm supposed to share my faith. But what does that mean for your life? Why do you do that? So I asked the, I asked the girls that. I said, well, why would you do that? Why would you spread the word no matter what? Like, just because someone told you to? Just because you read it in, in, in the Bible? And they said, well, we would do that because other people don't know Jesus. And so I want you to think, put, now, now put yourself in their shoes and try to answer these questions. So if I said, why, why, why do you feel like you need to spread the word? Um, and Daniel said this recently uh, about the mission of God, how it hasn't grasped our hearts, right? And we're not fully devoted to it because we know we're supposed to do that. But how many of us actually do that regularly, consistently? And it's our mission. And, and we've actually fully embodied that. So, so I asked the girls, I said, well, why would you do that? So think about that. Why, why would you do that? Why would you spread the word no matter what? What is your reason for doing that? Yeah, you know, it says it here, but, but why? And one of them responded, well, they need to know Jesus. Okay. And I said, but why? Why do they need to know Jesus? And you see here, guys, we're going deeper and deeper and deeper. We're getting to your first principles thinking. And we're going really deep. Why? Well, how would you answer that? Well, how would you answer why people need to know Jesus? Like, if that's where you got to. And so I asked them that. And they said, well, because God loves them. And I'm like, yes, he does. But why does that matter to them? <laughs> Is what I asked them. Why does that matter to them? Silence. I got, I got four, four beautiful little ladies just staring at me in silence. I said, well, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. This is what I asked the girls. I said, if you had parents who didn't love you, what would your life be like? So this is, this is like inversion thinking. I flipped it. Okay. I said, if you had parents who did not love you, what would your life be like? So think about that. If you had parents, and some of you guys probably had those parents who didn't love you, and think about what your life was like. Some of you guys, you came from loving families, like, like my nieces and, and my daughters come from from uh, loving families. So they had to imagine what it would be like. So they had to do some inversion thinking because it's the opposite of what their lives are like now. And so think about that for a second. If you had parents that didn't love you, what would your life be like? So they said, well, it would be really sad. And I said, yeah. One of them said, ah, I'd feel really lonely. I said, yeah, you would. One of them said, I would just have to, I, I, I would probably just have to depend on myself. I said, yeah, you would. Another one of them said, 
get this, guys. Talking about 8 to 11-year-olds here. I would always feel like I was missing something. That I should have had that, but I don't. One said, I'd feel like I'd feel angry, I think. And then another one said, I feel like I would have to strive for love all the time. And I said, what you all just said, everything you guys said, you described a life without Jesus. Because people aren't experiencing that love of God you talked about. But rather than God rejecting them, they rejected him. And we get to show them Jesus. We get to tell them about Jesus. We get to spread that word. We get to show them what God's love is like. We get to show them his perfect love. We get to show them the abundant life. We get to show them and give them the opposite of those things that you guys mentioned. We get to give them joy and community. We get to help them through life. We get to show them what it means to experience peace and wholeness, to not have to strive. We get to help them experience true, true genuine love. We get to show them the abundant life. We get to do that. We don't have to do that. We get to. It's such a privilege. That's why they need to know Jesus. That's why you spread the word at any cost. You guys see how that that moves from here, I know I have to spread the word, to now that just transformed me. That just reshaped my whole understanding of somebody else when they yell at me in the store or in traffic. And I get to say, they're not experiencing the love of God. And so I get to give that to them right now. I get to show them that. That's when you can turn the other cheek. That's when you can bless and not curse. That's when you can overcome evil with good. But you can only do that when those truths have transformed you, not just in your thinking, but in your walking. And so in your faith, if you're a follower of Jesus, break things down like that. Because you need to have a firm epistemological foundation, which means you need to know why you believe what you believe and why you do what you do. Guys, as a church, we've asked those questions. I've been asking those questions for eight years. Why do we do these things? Why are we doing what we're doing this way? And that's led us to R3. That's led us to this new strategy. That's, where, that's why we're moving forward on mission in this way. Because I've asked those questions. I've inverted my thinking. I've gone to first principles. I've sought the Lord and said, God, help me see these things. We've done that as, as a leadership team. We've done that as our three leaders. We've, we've done that together. Like, guys, we are saying, God, help us to see why we do what we do so we're actually doing the right thing and living out on mission for you. 
And now quickly, <laughs> Peter gives four things here to live out in light of the end of all things. Now, these must be pretty important. If he's going to give these four things and he says, and then of all things is at hand, so do these four things, they must be pretty important, right? So the first thing he says here in 7b is be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? Well, it says here, for the sake of your prayers. The word for sober-minded here can be translated as, as clear-minded. It's the same word that when Michelle preached weeks ago, uh, talked about girding up your loins. It's, it's the same word there. Um, preparing your minds for action and then being sober-minded. That's, uh, sorry, I said the same word, same passage there. And, and so it's, it means to have this clear mind, which he mentions again in, in uh, chapter 5, verse 8. So it's three times here in this book. It's important to Peter. It's important to God that we be clear, that we are clear-minded. And that contrasts with chapter, th- chapter 4, verse 3, where it says, hey, the time has passed. And that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. We don't do those things anymore. We're called not to, do, not to be, um, have nebulous minds, cloudy minds, but to have clear ones and to move forward in that. And, and so be self-controlled and so reminded. Why? For the sake of your prayers, because that informs your prayers. How many of you guys in your prayers, you feel so clouded in your mind? You don't know what to pray for. You don't know how to pray. Well, first of all, you need to let the end of all things at hand inform your perspective. When that doesn't inform your prayers and inform your perspective, you're probably praying the wrong things. And a large, uh, one of the big reasons for prayer is to align your will with God's will. Right now, our wills are separated probably. They're divergent. And as you pray, and the more and more you pray, the more and more our will gets aligned with God's will. And it changes what you pray for. It changes how you pray for it. Right? If your prayers are consumed with things for you, where, where it's just you asking God for things, like he's a cosmic Santa Claus, well, um, your will, God's will. Right? Maybe, maybe you need to... Maybe you're asking too much and you need to be more grateful for what God has already given you. That's where the gap closes, right? So um, that's just one example. So that helps you in your self-controlledness and your sober-mindedness. Self-control, oh my gosh, guys. I don't have time for this, but (laughs) I get to, I see some giggles behind that. I could do an entire series on self-control because we are a society that doesn't exercise self-control, uh, just, yeah, we're a society who doesn't. So uh, that's hard. You got to let that end of all things at hand, that, that perspective shift, shift, shift you, or else you can't. Because Peter's commanding that here. He's like, be self-controlled. You're like, ooh, how, how, how do I do that? Well, go back and let, let the transformation happen. The end of all things is at hand. Because it's why we spend so much time on that first part. So number two, uh, above all, he says in verse eight, keep loving one another earnestly. Since, and this is the why, because love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus said in the end times in Matthew 24, he says in the end times when lawlessness, lawlessness increases, 
the love of many will grow cold. In Proverbs 10, it says, hate stirs up, it mixes up, it, it brings to the surface strife. But love, love covers all offenses. James actually ends his book uh, with, with a similar phrase here about uh, covering a multitude of sins. So how are we supposed to love? He says, love one another earnestly. This doesn't mean we love with greater intensity, uh, but rather it's, it's a love that doesn't change based on our circumstances. It's not like I only love you if, or I only love you when. No, it's a love that's earnest. It's holistic. It's full. It doesn't change based on the circumstances. Uh, number three, this is uh, verse nine. Show hospitality to one another. How? Well, without grumbling, without grumbling, without complaining. Uh, show hospitality to one another. What's interesting here, we just talked about R3, is for us as Trinity life, uh, is in this passage, what's repeated over and over again is one another. Love one another, show hospitality to one another, use your gifts, in, in the, uh, we're going to talk about in a second, uh, to serve one another. Like all these one another's here, just in this, in this short passage, which indicates that Peter's putting this in the context of the community of faith, right? He's writing to community of faith here. And he says, do this to one another. And in, in Peter's time, this is all happening in homes, all across the cities, all across this region. It's happening in their homes. So when he says show hospitality, he's not saying, hey, have a great connections team and make sure you have um, the right bagels and all that stuff. Uh, for your Sunday service. He's talking about your home. He's talking about showing hospitality in your home without grumbling. He's talking about your home isn't your home. Your things in your home aren't your things. Show hospitality openly. Guys, that's the basis of our three. It's the basis of us decentralizing things. It's the basis of us saying, no, we're going to use our homes as tools for the kingdom of God to show hospitality to one and to invite people in and to not do it with grumbling, to not do it with complaining, but to do it openly and freely knowing we wouldn't have any of this if it wasn't for the Lord blessing us. So he says, you live out in that way. Uh, and then number four in verse 10, he says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Why? Because you've received grace, so now you multiply it. You've received these gifts, you receive grace, so now you multiply it. And in verse 11, he says, well, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. These are kind of representative gifts that some, some would say they represent basically all that we do as followers of Jesus. Think Colossians 3.17, where, where Paul says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, so here, Whoever speaks, whoever serves, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So it's kind of representing all the gifts here that God has given us. And so he says, whenever you speak, have the mentality that God is speaking through you. Oh, man, how would that change what you say to your boss, to your coworkers, to your neighbors, to your wife, to your kids, to your husband? How would that change what you say to God if you thought, I'm a vessel for God speaking oracles through my mouth. 
I want to say half the things I say. Guys, that's how he's telling us to live in light of the end of all things is at hand. Oh, speak as one who speaks oracles of God and then serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. We often serve in weakness. We often serve in grumbling, complaining. We often serve out of uh, obligation. We often serve out of legalism. We often don't want to serve other people. You know, he says, serve like you have the strength of God in you. The strength of God. Think, think Samson, this when the spirit of God comes on Samson, right? And he has a strength of God. And the strength that God supplies, Jesus had the strength when he went to the cross and he gave up everything for us in that strength. And he says, do this in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Here's Peter's, pers- here's Peter's progression of transformation. He starts with perspective in verse 7. He goes to prayer and still in verse 7, 7b. That empowers love in verse 8, which enables hospitality in verse 9, which allows for grace in verse 10. That's the, transfer- that's the life that's been transformed. When you are, when your perspective has shifted, your prayers, love, hospitality, grace is being multiplied. This is how Peter starts off his book. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, right? Education isn't just about cognition, guys. It's about transformation. And that's our goal. That's what we want. That's what we want the spirit to do in us. So we're going to close right now with a prayer, but not our typical prayer. What I want you to do is to pray this passage along with me. And I, wanna, uh, I want to just lead you through a prayer. Like I want us to ex- experience God together right now and pray through this passage. And, and, and so this is one tip. If you're like, well, yeah, I'm just stuck on the prayer thing. I don't, I don't even know where to go, where to start. Guys, a, a common practice of mine, something that helped me learn how to pray was just to pray scripture. I would just read it and I would pray that back to God. And that informed my prayer, that, that aligned me more and more with the will of God for, for um, this world and what he wants to do and, and how he wants me to influence. So, so that's the tip. Pray, just pray back scripture. So we're going to do that now. And I want you to repeat after me as we do that. I know a lot of times when, when someone prays, especially, I mean, even in person, but on, on a screen like this, you just check out, you think it's time, but no. I, would, I, I want you to repeat out loud what I'm about to say. And I want you to do that with, with your people. If you're in your R3, if you're alone, just speak it out loud. There's, there's power and it changes the atmosphere. And we're going to say this to God. We're going to say this to God together. So, um, yeah, just repeat after me. Uh, our Father, we want what you want to give us. And I need a new perspective. My perspective is often just a little bit off. And sometimes maybe more than that. And so I want this truth. That the end of all things is at hand. To form an eternal perspective in me. 
so that I can be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of my prayers to you, for the sake of my relationship with you. And above all, help me to keep loving one another earnestly. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Make me a person that shows hospitality like you did, like you do, without grumbling and complaining. And reveal to me the gifts that you've given me so that I can use them to serve others. Because I want to be a good steward of the grace that you've given me. And so when I speak, give me the, ment- give me the mentality and the awareness that I speak as one who speaks oracles of God. And when I serve, empower me with your strength that I would serve as one who serves by the strength that you supply. In order that in everything, you, God, may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Because to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.